0: This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 11 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and with me today is another special guest. He is a developer at Plausible Labs and the author of the Friday Q&A blog series, it's Mike Ash. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hello, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So we've actually never met in person, uh, probably because we are on two different continents. But uh, are you ever traveling around in Europe, or you're mostly hanging around in the, in the US?
1: So I actually lived in Europe for three years, many years ago, and uh, kind of got my start um, and while I was living there. So I uh, taught English for two years in France, and then I actually did my master's degree there. Wow. That's really cool. I I haven't been back uh, too recently. Uh, last time I think was two years ago. I went to oh, uh, go to Copenhagen conference and presented there. Oh, nice! And um, it's uh, it's getting a little bit harder to travel since uh, you know we're I've got a family and you know careers are growing and kids are in school and things like that. So, uh, but it's always fun when I get to go.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I try to travel as much as I can. I haven't been back in the US now for a couple of years. Last time was in WWDC 2014. Uh, So yeah, I really need to go back soon.
1: Yeah, just be nice to the uh, guys at the border because they have no sense of humor here.
0: Yeah, so I've heard. All right. Um, so you are a member of Plausible Labs, which what you, which is what you call a friendly neighborhood software cooperative. Uh, when I read that, I thought that was super interesting. So could you tell us a bit about what it is that you do at Plausible Labs and how this whole thing works?
1: Sure. Uh, So we mostly do consulting work. Uh, We do a lot of app development, iOS development, uh, sometimes Android server side. You know, we've got a a diverse set of skills and we uh, do whatever's needed, but um, iPhone app development tends to be our main focus. And uh, so in many ways, we're just like any other small company, uh, consulting company. So we've got uh, a few people who uh, work for us and we uh, have people contracting out on jobs and things like that and then the cooperative aspect means that typically in a company you've got someone or a group who owns the company and then you've got other people and in the cooperative those are the same group so all of our employees are also owners and there's no hierarchy or anything like that Um, we do officially have a CEO that's actually required by law I think, legally, he may have special powers, but uh, as far as the way things actually work, uh, we just all work together, and any time there are major company-wide decisions, we all just come together and uh, talk about it and work it out. And In theory, we vote on things, and it's a majority rule kind of thing. In practice, there's few enough of us, and we all kind of think on the same page, so it all tends to just be by consensus.
0: Oh Wow, that's a super interesting way of working. Uh, do you all work like in the same office or are you distributed or how no, does it work? No, we
1: are distributed. So I'm here in uh, in Virginia and then we've got people in Colorado and California. So oh, I cool. actually don't see my uh, coworkers very much at all.
0: Right. Yeah. Same as me. I also work remotely. So yeah, you have to make do with, with the internet and, you know, seeing each other a couple of times per year maybe or something like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. But it works out really well. Um, you know, we're, obviously we, we, uh, we know this and we, we're used to it and we don't know how to talk to each other and uh work remotely like that
0: that's really cool i can imagine that that kind of creates a very nice uh, company culture when everyone is kind of on the same level and everyone you know you know on paper you know everyone has the same kind of um you know say and the same kind of uh power if you will uh in the company i guess that creates a nice atmosphere
1: yeah exactly it's it's uh it's, it's very nice. You don't have to worry. You know, there's not nearly so much uh, politics or, or uh, fighting over people, you know, not wanting to do what the boss says or anything like that.
0: Yeah, because everyone is the boss. Exactly. <laughs> you wouldn't fight with yourself. Right.
1: And obviously it takes a certain kind of mentality for that to work because you have to, you, you have to be able to be your own boss. You know, you have to be able to uh, kind of direct your own work to an extent and uh, handle handle uh, decisions that uh, a software engineer might might not be handling in a more traditional company. but right? yeah. For a certain kind of people, I think it's it can be very nice.
0: Yeah, yeah, sounds good. All right, so what people probably know you uh, the most for is your awesome Friday Q and a series of blog posts. Uh, And you've been doing this for quite a while. Uh, You've been writing about things that are a little bit more kind of low level. You go into a lot of detail in every post, which I really, really like. Like most recently, you had a new post about locking mechanisms and thread safety in Swift. So how did this whole uh, initiative get started and uh, how did you get started with the Friday Q&A?
1: Yeah, so uh, many, many years ago, I started a blog because that's what people do. And uh, no particular reason for it, but it looks like that was about uh, twelve years ago, almost thirteen years ago.
0: Wow! Yeah, that's quite a long time.
1: Yeah, and so I thought it would be fun to write about programming and whatever. Lots of other people do it, and uh, you know, you see these things online, and you think, "Hey, I want to do that too." It's uh, I think that's how a lot of us got into programming as well, right? We we see these things on the computer, and we're like, "Hey, I can do that," or "I want to do that." Yeah, totally. And um so I set up a blog and started writing some stuff, but I didn't have a lot to write about. I, I had trouble coming up with uh, with interesting things to say. So I kind of sat idle. And it kind of frustrated me because I wanted to write about stuff, but I didn't know what to say. And You know, it kind of sat there, and so finally I had this idea. I'm like, wait a minute, how about I just ask other people? I'll I'll make them do the hard work of coming up with ideas, and then I'll just uh, you know write about whatever they want to write about, whatever they want me to write about. Yeah. So that was Friday Q and A. So that's the uh, Q and A part. Is it's. You know The title is a little bit misleading because it's not really so much questions as just topic suggestions because um, you know, sometimes you can turn a question into an article, but usually people just write in and say, hey, I'd like to hear more about such and such. And it's like, all right, that's not technically a question, but who cares? Yeah, I had this actually the same thing with, uh,
0: with this podcast as well. Originally, I started out saying that people can send in questions, like specifically questions, And I found that to be, you know, a little bit maybe limiting. And some people were like, well, I I don't really technically have a question. I'm more like a topic. So now I just changed it to be questions and topics.
1: That's really funny. Yeah, it was pretty much the same for me. So I think, you know, it's the these things are kind of longer form. Um, It's hard to have a single question where the answer can be an entire blog post or maybe an entire podcast episode. So you get a broader topic and then you can kind of dive in and Pick the most interesting parts and all that. Yeah. So I uh, I made a post and started soliciting these questions or topics, and uh, have just been doing that ever since. And sometimes I sneak in my own ideas instead of going based on what uh, what my readers want. But uh, usually it's their ideas, and even when it's not, you know, they're inspiring me, and so it's a great way to come up with things to talk about. Without having to do that all that work myself, and without getting stuck on maybe my own obscure interests that other people don't care about.
0: Yeah, it has a great format. Uh, I obviously agree with the format because <laughs> you know this is the same format pretty much. Uh, I think it's awesome because it also creates like a very nice dialogue, uh, you know, an async dialogue if you will, with your readers or listeners, uh, where people you know they can be a little bit more involved and they can kind of decide what they want to hear about and they want to read about. And I think that's really, really, really nice.
1: Yeah, I agree. And uh, with my blog post, of course, I've got a comment section. So that's a, a little more of a direct feedback on that stuff uh, than you get with the podcast. Yeah. And uh, that's been one thing that I really enjoyed is usually, uh, you know, the, the guideline on the internet is pretty much, uh, don't read the comments unless you feel like getting frustrated or annoyed or, or something like that. Um, <laughs> you know, the YouTube comments, especially are like the, uh, you know, that's the metaphor for like the worst of humanity. And uh, in so many other places, it's, it's the same. And on my articles, and I try really hard not to take any credit for this because I'm pretty sure I'm not doing anything, but I always get really, really top quality comments, and it's always wonderful. I get, I get great questions in the comments, I get occasional comments from insiders who know what's going on or understand the stuff better than I do, and it's been really wonderful.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I feel the same way. Uh, you know, it's very rare that someone is like really rude or you know trolling or anything like that. I, I hope we don't invite the trolls to our blogs now when we say this. Right. <laughs> but yeah, usually people are asking really good questions and uh, you know have really good feedback as well, which you know I always appreciate. Uh, so that's super cool. Awesome. Speaking of questions and topics, what do you say? Should we uh, start diving in to this episode's questions and topics?
1: All right. Let's do it.
0: Let's do it. All right, so as you know, this show is all about, uh, like we just talked about, uh, answering questions and talking about topics that were submitted by you, the audience. And it's really the backbone of the show. So I am really, really happy for everyone who sends in questions and keeps, uh, you know, giving me feedback and new topic ideas. So if you have a question or topic that you'd like us to discuss in an upcoming episode, you can go to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, or just tweet it to at Swift on Twitter. So for this episode's questions, we're going to start with one from Gabriel Ruppilliard. And he has a question for you, Mike. He knows that you've analyzed the details of retain cycles in Swift 4, that is the strong, weak, and unowned different types of um, of uh, keeping a reference to an object. Uh, is there a way in Swift 4 to determine the current count uh, for a particular variable? And uh, Gabriel here says that he couldn't find a command that does this in Swift. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, that's a, a really interesting question. So uh, as people probably know, every object has a retained count, which is how Swift's memory management works, uh, every strong reference in Create increments that count, and then when those references go away, it's decremented, then the object gets destroyed when it reaches zero because nobody's interested in it anymore. And then there's also weak and unowned references, and Swift's implementation of those ends up using a separate count for weak references and another one for unowned references, which keep track of how many of those are around each object. And uh, that is used for uh, bookkeeping to figure out when this object side table can be destroyed, which is basically how the weak references uh, are able to work without exploding when the object gets destroyed and a weak reference still points to it. And so there is an API because uh, Swift is connected somewhat to the Objective-C runtime and which in turn is connected to the Core Foundation runtime. So there is no command in Swift in in pure Swift to get an object's retain count. Uh, they try pretty hard to hide that from you. The only thing that really exposes it in any way is the um, what's it called, is is known, uh, uniquely referenced, I think is the API call. Um, whatever it is that you can use to implement um, intelligent copy-on-write data structures where it basically will tell you whether a given reference to an object is the only reference or not. And that's essentially checking to see if the retain count is 1 or not 1. So they're careful to design it that way so that you can't abuse it, because in Objective-C, back in the day, especially before we had ARC, you would occasionally come across code that didn't quite understand the concept of reference counting and tried to get a little too clever. And you'd call, you'd see code that would call retain count in a loop where it would decrement the retain count a certain number of times until it reached a value and just terrible things like that. (laughs) So they try really hard to hide that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I guess this is uh, kind of in line with the same philosophy that, um, you know, removing uh, the need to know about pointers explicitly or seeing pointers in your source code. So in Objective C, you know you had to have a pointer to an object with a little star, just like in C. Uh, but in Swift, we don't have that. We just refer to objects using lets and vars and all that kind of stuff. and all that all those kind of details are kind of abstracted away from us.
1: Yeah, exactly. Swift tries to uh, file down a lot of the sharp edges so that you can't hurt yourself. Um, <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. But, you know, we, uh, especially the kind of things I do is I like to dig up those sharp edges and, and do things with them anyway. So the, uh, for the plain retain count, for the strong retain count, you can, as I mentioned, this Swift is co- somewhat connected to the Objective-C runtime, which is also connected to the Core Foundation runtime. And so even though Swift doesn't have this kind of call you can still use these other runtimes to get this information so uh, cf get retain count is the core foundation function which takes a core foundation object and returns its retain count so all Objective-C objects are also core foundation objects and when you're running on the mac or on ios all swift objects are also Objective-C objects which means they're also core foundation objects so it's really not obvious at all but you can use the cf get retain count to retrieve the retain count of a Swift object which is occasionally handy you've got to be you know don't don't use this for evil (laughs) Um, this is the kind of thing where it's really handy for investigating stuff it's really handy for debugging and things like that but you never ever want to put it in your actual shipping code yeah. Because things will go horribly, horribly wrong.
0: <laughs> and how would you actually call that uh, function? Would you cast your Swift, Swift object to as and as object or something like that?
1: I believe you could use an as. You may need to do a double as, where you do like Swift object as, um, actually, it's, I think it's going to be an any object. So you'd. Uh, right. It's Swift objects are Objective-C objects, but they're not necessarily NS objects. Right, got it. Which is a weird concept for people who are not used to multiple root classes. So (laughs) uh, if you don't explicitly subclass an Objective-C class, then your Swift classes descend from Swift object, which is a bit different. Right. So uh, you cast any object, and then you may need to then cast that to uh, CF type, um, which is like the base class for uh, core foundation. I'm not actually sure if that works at runtime. Uh, so the other option you could do is an unsafe bitcast to whatever CF retain count expects to receive.
0: Yeah, that always works.
1: Right, and you yeah. know, y- usually you don't want to use those. But like I said, you you should only be doing this for exploration or debugging anyway, so it's fine. Yeah. Um, so the question is, we have CF get retain count, and that returns the strong reference count. But what about the weak and unowned reference count? There is, as far as I know, no public API uh, for this, whether directly or you know, some sort of abusive conversion thing like um CF get retain count. So your option, your best option is probably to dig into the memory, underlying memory itself. And um, so if you look in the Swift runtime source code, you can see how this stuff gets laid out in memory. And you can basically take an object reference in Swift and then cast it to a pointer and start dereferencing that pointer to dig around and, and get at the various values inside. So if you look up the article I wrote on how Swift for weak references work, you'll find links to the source code. So you don't have to uh, dig through that gigantic source tree, trying to figure out where it is um, that links directly to the implementation of this stuff. Nice. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. All right. And, um, For anyone just listening on audio, that's going to be mikeash.com. Click on blog, and then scroll down until you find uh, Swift 4 weak references. And so you can look to see how these things are laid out. Basically, you're going to take the object reference, cast it to a pointer. I believe you're going to get the second word out of that pointer, which, if the object has any weak references to it, is going to be a pointer to a side table so you would then dereference that pointer and then dig into that so you basically have to write your own code to do it it is possible that the swift runtime offers some private functions for retrieving these values and if that's the case then you should be able to uh, load those with something like dl uh, dl and call that function pointer so there's nothing easy mm-hmm. but if you uh, dig into the runtime sources it should definitely be possible
0: nice. Yeah, I guess like we just discussed it's like like this with all of these things. It's it's kind of not easy by design,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They they don't want you making decisions based on this stuff. And yeah. you know, it's it's always this conflict there's um because it it can be really useful for debugging or just learning, but you don't want to ship it. And it's for Apple, it's really hard to make an API which is like here is this thing you can use, but only you know only internally. You can't like you can't send this to your users. It's it's how do you enforce that? So they tend to just uh, they tend to just not expose it, which is totally fine. Um, I look at it as sort of like a uh, at a carnival ride. You know, you got those signs like you must be at least this tall to enter, right? <laughs> so you must be at least this tall to use this API because it's not an API; it's all hidden, and you got to go digging into it. Right. All right. So uh, that was a
0: really great question. Uh, Let's move over now to the next one, which comes from uh, Kedar Vaida and uh, Kedar asks uh, is it seems that the current version of Swift and the language is sufficient to program most of our requirements. But one source of frustration is the tooling. There's long compile times and source kit problems, etc. So The question is: Should the Swift group dial back on the language enhancements for a while and just focus on tooling? So this is a very common debate in the Swift community. Like, you know, what's the status of the tooling? You know, is it good enough? Uh, Should you know more effort be put on it, and you know, stuff like that? So, what are your thoughts on that, Mike? Like, what do you think about the current state of our tooling, and do you think
1: more effort should be put into that rather than new language features? So that's really interesting, and. You know the the way you said it, the way the uh, the person asking the question said it, is is definitely the way I think, and the way I think a lot of people do. The I usually tell people when they ask about Swift if they're not familiar with it. I say it's a really great language with a sort of not so great toolchain at the moment. So the language itself is is uh, really nice in in a lot of ways, in my opinion. But you know the compiler crashes sometimes. Error messages are often useless. Um, it's it can be tough. So. I think it's definitely gotten a lot better. We're still far from where it ought to be, but it's definitely much better than it used to be. So that's definitely good news. Yeah. I feel like as far as the question of should they stop focusing so much on language improvements and start focusing on tooling improvements, I feel like that's actually where they're going already. So there's the, the pace of language change and improvement has definitely fallen off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a bad way, like they've started slacking on it, but really just they've started to get the language to where it ought to be. Yeah. Um, Swift 1 came out, was really definitely experimental. Um, Swift 2 started to solidify things, but was still not quite there. Um, Swift 3 really started to get close to where I think they wanted to be. And so starting from there, these massive changes and additions have started to kind of slow down. And it seems like there is more focus being put on the tooling.
0: Yeah, especially now if you follow things like the Swift Evolution mailing list and all the conversations, there's a lot more focus on things like ABI stability and, you know, fixing compiler crashes and compiler bugs and things like that. So I, I definitely agree with you. It seems that, you know, there's a lot more focus put on the stability and the diagnostics and the overall like ergonomics of compiling your Swift code.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so ABI stability is an interesting thing um, because I think ABI stability is I'm not quite sure where to categorize that. You know, is that like a language improvement that's something they should not be focusing on or how does that work? But regardless of how you how you think about it, um, I think ABI stability is a huge goal for the developers because Apple really wants ABI stability so that they can start incorporating it into the OS more. And until ABI stability hits, they can't ship any Swift frameworks that would ship with the operating system, which uh, I'm sure they want to do. So they, they need to get that done. And regardless of how you categorize that and whether, whether we want it, it's, it's something that's got to happen. And it is happening. So beyond that, um, a lot of other things have solidified. And it's in a good in good shape, so we're not seeing so many changes. To the extent that we are, uh, there are a few major language features that they really wanted to get in, which have to be there before ABI stability hits, because those features will influence what the final ABI looks like. Um, conditional conformances are the big one that I'm really interested in, and seems like the big one that the language guys are really interested in as well.
0: Yeah, and this the uh, just to explain uh, conditional conformance real quick. It's when you have uh, you want to make an extension uh, to conform to a protocol, for example. Let's say you have an array, and you want to say, I want this array uh, to conform to this protocol, but only if the type is string. So only make an array of strings conform to my printable protocol or whatever you have.
1: The uh, the canonical example there, just so that people can understand how really useful this could be, um, would be something like uh, extension array conforms to equatable where element conforms to equatable so basically saying arrays are equatable if they contain equatable contents
0: right yeah that's a good one
1: it's a really funny thing in Swift right now so you can you can do a double equals on anything that's equatable and then you can do a double equals on arrays containing equatable but that's not because they are themselves equatable that's just because there's an implementation of double equals for arrays containing equatable so you can do Equatable and you can do arrays containing equatable, but if you have arrays containing arrays containing equatable It stops working because there's no implementation for that one, right? And so in this wonderful future once these things land uh, We'll just say arrays are equatable where their contents are equatable and everything will just start making sense Yeah, that's awesome And so that that uh, feature which they really want to get in and is being worked on now I believe has Major implications for the final ABI. So, if they want ABI stability, they have to implement this thing, and they definitely want ABI stability. So, for something like this, they really have to keep making these features—not all features, but anything that might impact the ABI has to get in now. Yeah. And so, there's this trade-off between those, that work and the tooling work, and they definitely are pushing more towards improving the tools, but the, there's there's a limit to how far they can go at the moment.
0: Yeah. I also feel sometimes that this debate, uh, it kind of makes the assumption that the skill set of working on tooling is the exact same as language design, which is not necessarily true. I mean, it's not the exact same people who work on the core Swift team at Apple who are also the people building Xcode or the people building XE build uh, or Xcode build or the other command line tools. So sometimes I feel like it's a little bit uh, talking about apples versus oranges, but yeah, overall, it seems to be a big push towards uh, focusing more on the kind of low level stability and tooling side of things.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think um, this comes up a lot where, uh, when talking about what companies focus on. It's like, why are they putting so much effort into A and not as much effort into B when we really need B? And sometimes the answer is just uh, they don't have enough people to can do B and the people who do A can't. Um, yeah. I'm sure there's there's a decent amount of overlap in the, uh, in the Swift world, but you, know, you can only take that so far. Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. Uh, so let's go ahead now and jump into the next question. And this one comes from Christopher. And Christopher asks, do you ever wish that Apple tried something like Objective-C 3.0 instead of Swift? So iteratively working, continue to work on Objective-C rather than say, okay, let's create a brand new language. So I guess this is a little bit the kind of classic refactor or rewrite debate, right?
1: Yeah, that seems like it, and it's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I worked in Objective C for a long time, and it's it's a great language in many ways, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I enjoy Swift as well. So, you know, how do they how do they compare, and what what could we have had if if Apple hadn't done Swift and had instead committed to Like doing a new version of 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 Objective C, which is a really difficult but really interesting question. Yeah. So I always said that Objective C's best and worst feature was the fact that it was compatible with C. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: The uh, the fact that it could it was it is rather it's a superset of C that means that it can easily call into any C API. There's a lot of C APIs out there. C is really really useful, and if you look at a language, other uh, more modern languages like, um, for example, Python that I, uh, I did a lot of work in, other languages like that, you get a lot of really great features and they're really nice to use until you need to start interacting with the system in some way that hasn't already been anticipated by the language designers. So you have to start making calls into the POSIX API or something like that. And once you do that, then you have to start calling C APIs, and you have to start doing uh, foreign function interface calls and and nasty things like that. And it's never any fun. (laughs) So these languages almost always end up with something where you take the API you're going to call and you basically redeclare it. So you've got this function prototype in a header file, and you basically have to take that and translate it into whatever language you're working in to say, this is what it looks like when I'm going to call that thing. Yeah. And it just, it's there's a lot of friction. It really slows you down. So Objective-C gives you a lot of nice features. You get object-oriented programming and message passing and, and uh, automatic memory management now and all this great stuff. But because it still has C, you can directly call these APIs without having to do any extra work. Yeah. Which is... Uh, Really wonderful, but at the same time because it's based on C you have a lot of difficult problems like um, It still uses the C type system. It still uses all the C primitives So that means that for example NS array can only contain objects it can't contain int or double or things like that So then you get these annoying things like uh, NS number to box things up so that they can go in You have trouble like uh, you you can use the Objective-C runtime to look up methods on an object and call things you've never even heard of, which is really cool, And but if you don't know the types of the method that you're calling, it doesn't really work because method calls are ultimately still C function calls, and so there's this dynamic message sending system in there where it does all this fancy dispatch, and yet at the same time, the caller and the receiver have to exactly agree on what the parameters are and what types they are. There's no dynamic anything in there. Yeah. And so that means that if you're doing certain uh, interesting tasks, you have to write a ton of boilerplate to basically go through and work with all of these primitive values that are not objects because of all this underlying C stuff. So it's 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 the best and the worst part of, of objective C in my opinion
0: yeah and I guess that's why Swift was marketed uh, when it was introduced as objective C without the C
1: yeah exactly which is pretty funny because it's really not it's <laughs> it's not the objective part of objective C and it's not without the C so you know what but it's uh, if someone's completely new to the language and has no idea what's what it's about or who it's from or anything like that that's a you know a good way to get started on it so. yeah. So for a hypothetical Objective-C 3.0, you know what would that look like? So I imagine, obviously you'd, you'd still have this C foundation, this best and worst part of the language, because that's fundamentally what it is. So you'd still be able to call all these nice C APIs. You'd still have to deal with some of the trouble that comes with it. But you know, there's a lot of improvements that could be made, definitely. We've seen some of that uh, starting to happen in Objective C now, mainly for Swift compatibility, like uh, Objective C generics and nullability um, annotations, which definitely could have happened completely unrelated to Swift and are all very nice features. And um, beyond that, you know, it's it's tough to say like. One thing Swift does is it um, it gives up on Objective-C's message dispatch system for a more traditional Vtable dispatch, which is a little bit less flexible but faster. Um, Objective-C could have added something similar. Would that be appropriate? You know, would that just be a ridiculous thing to do? Uh, it's hard to say. I think message passing is probably inherent to the idea of Objective-C, so you know maybe that's not the direction it would go in.
0: Yeah, I think you kind of hit on the core thing here, which is, would it be possible to implement so many things that make Swift so great uh, without kind of ruining the things that makes Objective-C so great? So, uh, you know, Objective-C, one thing that it has over Swift, which is, you know, really cool, is all the dynamism and that it's kind of more loosely structured. And like you mentioned, you can play around with it and you can do some interesting things with it. That they may be possible in Swift and they might definitely be possible in the future, but it's definitely not kind of the vision of the language. And it's not, it doesn't feel like the idea of being super dynamic and super, you know, flexible in that sense is kind of the, the is kind of compatible with the idea of Swift and the core core values of it. So the, the question is like, would it even be possible to, would you just end up with a kind of a weird hybrid if you made something like objective swift right where you get kind of the worst of both worlds instead of getting the best of both worlds that that could be possible so i i guess that's kind of the reason why they chose to you know make it a brand new language to kind of say okay let's make a new language that has new ideas new kind of principles and let's build you know from the ground up from there
1: yeah i think that makes a lot of sense you you look at uh some of the features swift has some of the, like the really compelling features and think about objective c a lot of them definitely could be added um enums in swift for example uh, yeah. could be added to objective c not you know not like the c enums we have where they're basically just integers but you know the actual nice structured things where they can have associated values and things like that you could definitely add that in um, operator overloading for example you could totally have that yeah. You know, if you could start adding together your NS numbers and concatenating your strings and all that stuff. And um, there's no reason Objective-C couldn't have that sort of thing. So that that would definitely be interesting. I think the result would be a bit less coherent than Swift. And the back to the original question of, do I wish they had done that? You know, right. From, would this be a good thing in my opinion I would say no Um, I think Swift has hit a really nice medium Um, I mentioned you know many times that the best and worst feature of Objective-C is the C compatibility and that's because it's a superset of C now Swift clearly is not it's a completely different language C code is not valid Swift code but the interop story with Swift is really 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 good Yeah. Um, It's better than almost any other language I've seen that isn't actually based on C. So in most of these languages, you know, like I said, you have to do all this extra work to port over the declarations and tell it what to expect and all this. And in Swift, you just say, here's a header file. Go. And it understands these declarations. It's not based on C, but it has enough knowledge of C to let let that all happen. Yeah. And so I think you get basically all of that benefit that you had from Objective-C with Swift, despite the fact that it's it's not designed in the same way. And you lose all of the baggage that came along with it um, that w- that was all the downside of Objective-C. So I think that ultimately Swift ended up being a really, really nice direction to go in because of that. And the, the decision to do this really tight C interop was was a really great decision on their part.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, and also a lot, makes it a lot easier to adopt, especially in a larger project where you can, you know, keep your Objective-C code and still, you know, start using Swift in parts of it.
1: Yeah, exactly. If, you know, you, you can do that with other languages too, but it's just so much work. Yeah, and absolutely. It's it's, uh, it's so much easier with Swift.
0: So that is actually a very nice segue into the next question, <laughs> which, uh, comes from, uh, Kawaya Forok. And, uh, he asks, what are some good approaches and practices to migrate your iOS code from objective C to Swift? So let's say you have, you know, a larger code base, you have lots of objective C code and you want to start adopting Swift. Um, you know, how should you go about that?
1: Yeah, that's, um. That's a great question. I haven't done a ton of piecemeal migration like that, but I've definitely talked to a lot of people who have. And um, Swift is a great language. I think it can help a lot to write better code, to write faster code, to write code faster. And you you may have a huge code base that you want to switch over, and they do cooperate really well, so you can do it piecemeal like this, and it may be worthwhile. Um, you probably don't want to sit down and rewrite your entire app in Swift, so that would be a bad approach to migrating would be to just do a total rewrite because it 's going to take longer than you think, and you're going to have problems and just probably don't try that you know if you 're doing your next major version that was going to be a total rewrite anyway, maybe
0: yeah, but it 's like the classic thing you know you throw out all the bugs you knew about and you get lots of bugs, bugs that, that you didn't ones. know about <laughs> right yeah. Especially so. when you change both. You rewrite everything and you change the language itself. So it's like
1: two big changes at the same time. Yeah, that's 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 going to be totally fun, no doubt. So assuming we're going to be reasonable people and we're going to migrate piecemeal, and how do you approach that? So the first thing I'd say is before you even start doing any Swift code is take a look at your code base and make sure it's in good shape. Make sure you're following good practices. Make sure you have tests. You know, it's... Um, it's going to be like uh, any other major refactoring job. You want to have something where after you make changes, you can go back and validate that you haven't totally screwed everything up. And so if you don't have tests, if you can't easily test the app, and if you have weird parts of it that don't make any sense or that you thought you really needed to fix, but you've always just had to ship and you just never had the chance to fix it, you know, maybe, maybe do that before you start really digging into it. Once you have that, you've got a good foundation. then you can start actually thinking about adding Swift into the project. And there's basically, there's kind of three ways to add Swift. You can add Swift only for totally new code. Like if you're creating a new class, it can be Swift. You can start converting existing Objective-C code. Um, like anytime you touch it, you can decide like when you start making major changes to an Objective-C class, just go ahead and convert it over. Yeah, or you could say, uh, even if you're not making major changes to a class. Uh, we're still going to go through, and like on a, on a slow and steady basis, we're just going to go through and convert these things. So I would say definitely start making new code in Swift. And when you do this, you've got to keep in mind that Objective-C code may still need to talk to it. So you have to be careful of which features you use. You probably don't want to make generic classes. You don't want to be enum-heavy, that kind of thing, unless you can start to wall off part of your Uh, part of your project and say, this particular area is going to be Swift. And we can design Swift APIs for use internally within this area, while still exposing Objective-C to the rest of the world.
0: And that would actually be one of my major recommendations is, you know, you talk about following best practices. And I think one of those best practices that you should try to get in place before starting to migrate is modularity. And it doesn't you know, mean that you have to create frameworks for your entire code base and, you know, have everything be separate modules, you know, technically, but at least have like separate pieces of your app, like different features or different, you know, modules, different parts that can be migrated in of their own. And that enables you to both, uh, like you say, create like Swift specific APIs within the module so that the outside can still be compatible with Objective-C. But it also makes it so much easier to manage and to understand because what you're also doing, and something that is very important to keep in mind, is that you're really separating the implementation into two kind of very different parts. So navigating the code base, if there's like a lot of mixed Swift and Objective-C inside the same part of the code base, it can become really hard to navigate because you you're like in the Objective-C layer and you're like, where do I go now? Where is this view, for example? And oh, right, that's a Swift class. You have to jump over. So I think... Trying to keep things local and just like migrating module by module can really help in just managing it.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I was kind of uh, implicitly assuming that the code was nicely modular, but it definitely (laughs) deserves to be stated outright because that is not a given. Um, Right. You know, if if your design is totally messy, maybe think about fixing that first. Right. You know, you the uh, it's like the the recommendation to sharpen the saw. Right. If you're going to cut down a tree, then you should spend a bunch of time first making sure that your saw is sharp because you're going to save time overall. Yeah. And I think the same has got to be true with swift migration. Um, If you take some time up front to get your app into shape and if assuming it's not you know you maybe you've done everything right the first time so you don't have to do any of this but if you've got some pain points in your app already those are going to become much much worse once you start trying to do this so take some time up front address those get it into shape and then the rest will go easier and you'll save time overall all right i think we have time for one more question
0: and this one comes from roberto Garrido. And he asks, as developers, uh, we need to keep up to date with new technologies. So how do you find time to learn new APIs and new technologies and to kind of become a better programmer? So what do you think, Mike? Like, what, how do you usually uh, allocate time to learning new things?
1: Well, I would say actually the blog is a big part of that. Um, you know, it, it, To my readers, it might look like just a public service or something like that. But there's a lot of selfish motivation behind that. Um, By writing articles on a regular basis, I get that uh, push to discover new things. And I think the way I write might convince people that I just know all this stuff and it just kind of comes out. But there's (laughs) research that goes into this and experimentation. And a great way to learn something is to try to explain it to other people. And, you know, I've got a blog that people actually read, which is really cool. Um, uh, Our our listeners may not have that, but they can still, you know, you could start one. You could, uh, even if nobody reads it, it's still great practice to write this stuff and research it. And um, another thing I do is just help other people out with their problems. So people have programming problems. You know, I hang out in uh, a MacDev IRC channel, and I've got uh, local friends. We hang out in a chat room, and sometimes people have Strange questions about their code. They can't figure something out. Something's broken. And helping those people out helps me out at the same time because it gets, uh, lets me practice problem solving. It lets me see things that I haven't touched before. It lets me uh, look into new APIs that I haven't considered before. So I think that's uh, a lot of it is just writing for other people and helping other people is a great way for me to keep on top of things myself.
0: Yeah. That's a really good advice. Uh, I also. Agree, I also write mainly the Swift blog to, you know, share knowledge with people, but also to, you know, give myself kind of an excuse to dig deep into like things like GCD or the new string API, whatever it might be. So definitely like learning by writing and learning by, you know, showing other people. And also what you say to work with new people and, you know, work in different teams and work on open source with other people is a great way to learn new things. And for new APIs, what I personally mostly do is I just use playgrounds a lot. I just fire up a new playground almost every day and I just like experiment with something new or some new technique or try out something like does this compile or does this even work in Swift? Uh, Just I try to be curious and I try to just try new things all the time. And I think that's kind of the the recipe to staying fresh and staying also motivated and you know wanting to keep uh, doing new things
1: yeah I agree the um, playgrounds are, are a great tool for learning new stuff and you know we they're, they're a new invention and it's great to have them around and things are so much easier that way and if you it, it helps you keep in mind that if you're learning a new API you're experimenting with it you don't have to build an app that you're gonna sell you don't have to build some giant new feature you can just poke at the thing real quick and, you know, see what it does. What happens if I, if I do this?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, build, like, a super simple little proof of concept or whatever. Like, it's super valuable. All right. So uh, that's it for this episode. Um, a lot of great questions. Thank you so much to everyone who sent them in. And, again, if you want to ask a question or submit a topic for an upcoming episode, uh, go to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast or just tweet your question or topic to at on Twitter. On the next episode, my guest is going to be Matthias Tretter, and he is an awesome developer who works on Mindnode, which is one of my favorite apps for iOS and the Mac. It's this mind mapping application, which I use a lot. And he's also done a couple of great conference talks about accessibility and how to share code between iOS and macOS. So, I think we're going to have some really interesting discussions with him on the next episode. So, for this one, we've reached the end. And all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Mike, for joining me on this
1: episode. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it was a lot of fun and lots of fun to go deep into things like the runtime and reference counts and all that kind of stuff. I love doing that. So, if people want to read your fine work and uh, follow you online, where should they go?
1: So uh, I'm Mike Ash basically everywhere, Um, Twitter at Mike Ash. You can find my website, mikeash.com. The blog is over on the side. Uh, Just above that, you'll find the link to buy my book if you feel like um, purchasing a copy of my wonderful writing, or so people say. Um, (laughs) And then I've also got a ton of stuff on GitHub. The link is on my webpage there, or it's just github.com slash mikeash. And um, my GitHub repositories are full of crazy, weird experiments, most of them things you should never use, but are a lot of fun to play with. And the occasional useful library is in there as well. That's
0: awesome. Yeah, definitely make sure to check that out. All right, you can also find everything about this podcast and the weekly Swift blog at swiftbysundell.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Sundell. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.